10 and uh, verse number 31 through chapter 11 and verse number 1. These go together. Many Bible commentators uh, agree that what Paul says in the beginning of chapter 11, verse number 1, remember when the Bible was first written, it did not have chapter and verse divisions. And they definitely are a help to us, but uh, sometimes we're not careful. They create a disconnect uh, that was not a part of the Spirit's plan. I want you to notice verse number 31, chapter number 10, a familiar verse of Scripture. Uh, we often quote verse 31. I know it's the theme verse of the camp where our kids go in the summer times. And, uh, but we forget about the rest of the chapter if we're not careful. Notice if you would, verse number 31, the Apostle Paul says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink... Or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense. Here's verse 32. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Breaks up humanity into three groups. Verse number 33. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And he's not just talking about people making a profession of faith. He's talking about the full work of salvation in someone's life. And the moment they trust Christ as Savior, through the process of sanctification, all the way to glorification. And then chapter 11, and verse number 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I'd like to preach a message this morning entitled, For the Glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us as we look into your word this morning? I believe very practical help here for us as it relates to uh, the decision-making aspect of each of our lives. I ask that we would, from the three principles that we'll consider, really the three imperatives, uh, that we'll gain strength and help for the not only the daily decision-making that we do, but uh, the big decisions that we make in life as well. And I ask all these things for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid aside his, the visible manifestation of his eternal glory and put upon himself in a decision, put upon himself a robe of human flesh and came and humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross, not to please himself, but to please us, not to minister to himself, but to minister to us. And I pray as we bring the message full circle at the conclusion this morning to that very thought, the example of Christ, I ask that we would be doing an examination in our heart. Lord, we need to regularly come back to this point of view and uh, hit a recalibration button, if you would, in our minds and hearts. Thank you for how you're working in my life, and I pray that you would do a work in each of us this morning as we consider this text of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been doing some thinking lately about the impact of a single simple decision, uh, my ministry to the Lord as a Christian, uh, how it affects me as an individual and how it affects others. And I'm just speaking generically. In, in my own thinking, I've been thinking about the difference between how many times I make a decision based on what's convenient as opposed to making a decision that may not be convenient up front, but I know that if I make that decision, as hard as it may be, as inconvenient as it may be, there's a day coming when I'll look back and I'll say, I'm glad I made that decision. The difference in that perspective. I think about the impact in Scripture of a single decision made by individuals that are known to us in the Bible. I think about the, and Doc mentioned this in the Sunday School Hour, the impact of a single decision made by Adam and Eve. And the ramifications of that that we're still dealing with today. I think about the single decision 
of a man named Abraham. When God said, leave your country, and by faith he did. And how, even though we're Gentiles, we are the beneficiaries of Abraham's single decision to obey God by faith. An entire message or more could be preached on the impact of that decision as it relates to his example of faith, how the nation of Israel would be birthed out of him, how Messiah would come through him because of that obedient decision. I think about the decision of a teenager named Daniel. 17 years of age, a young man purposed in his heart that he would not allow himself to be defiled by the things of this world. If Daniel had not made that decision, there likely wouldn't be a book in the Bible named after him. And all the prophecy that we get from him, not to mention his godly example. I think about a young man, another teenager, all of our young people who are in the auditorium this morning, another teenager by the name of David. Single decisions that he made. I thought about when he showed up in the valley of Elah that day and there brought the meat and the cheese to the captain of his brothers and nourishment to his brothers as well and heard that big mouth giant down in the valley of Elah mocking the people of Israel and the God of Israel. That 17-year-old boy made a decision. He could have said, you know what, that's man's work. We got professional soldiers trained here, but instead he made a decision to ask some questions. Is somebody going to do something about that? When he saw no one else doing something about it, and a teenage boy made a decision that had ramifications long-term in the nation of Israel's history. I think about a young woman of sketchy background and ancestry, Ruth, the Moabitess. And yet a couple of single decisions that she made. One, to return to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And then along the way, when Naomi said, go back, go back, and Orpah did, and the pressure of watching her sister-in-law go back, and yet Ruth said, no, where you go, I will go. A single decision that would bring her into the seed line of Messiah. A single decision. I think about Peter making a single decision on the banks of Galilee to leave his nets and follow Jesus. I think about the impact and the help that it was to the Apostle Paul that a doctor by the name of Luke laid aside what could have been a lucrative practice and instead followed a poor missionary all over the known world, making sure that his physical needs were taken care of. I think about a businesswoman making a single decision one day in the city of Philippi to go to a prayer meeting on the banks of the river. And there she met the Apostle Paul who would introduce her to Christ. A single decision. Think about the single decision of a 16-year-old boy, a young person again, a man by the young man by the name of Timothy, to agree to go with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. I think about the impact of a single decision in a man whose life Christ had transformed him, a man who had been the maniac of Gadara, and yet the Lord transformed him. He wanted to go with Jesus. And yet Jesus said, no, I want you to stay home. As you study the gospel of Mark, you see that that man stayed home like the Lord asks many of us to do, even as we send others to the field. He asks many of us to stay home and tell what great things the Lord has done for you. 
And the impact of it was that at a time when Jesus did not find reception, Mark chapter number 5, but instead the people said, leave us after they saw his power, the maniac would go home and through his testimony, he would prepare hearts for Christ so that when Jesus came back around through Decapolis sometime later, he found great reception because the maniac had stayed home. Decisions are like watersheds or continental divides. Everything flows down from there. I don't know if you recognize this, but anytime we get on Interstate 40 or Interstate 26 and go west or Interstate 40 and go west, we cross the eastern continental divide. What does that mean? Once you reach that point, all the water flows downhill, either back west towards the Mississippi River Valley or back east towards the Atlantic Ocean from there. Everything flows downhill from there. A decision is like the watershed or the continental divide. Everything in life flows down from decisions that we make. Whether it's a single decision in a simple way or a great decision. A single decision will influence the rest of our lives. The simple daily or weekly decision to form habits in our lives. To be in the word of God on a daily basis. To have family devotions. The impact of that. To cut back on worldly entertainment in your life so that you can make more room for more spiritual activity. Decisions to be in church and on and on. I know I'm preaching to the choir people who are here. But simple daily, weekly decisions or habits or single decisive actions, even secret decisions that will ultimately and eventually have a public impact. The power of a decision. As we think about the importance of a decision, that is why it is wonderful to me that God gives us guidance in his word for making right decisions. Especially since the rest of life and eternity are so profoundly impacted by the decisions we make, whether it's a simple daily decision or a life-changing decision. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 through chapter 11 and verse number 1 are something of a watershed, a continental divide in 1 Corinthians. We all are reminded of the mess that the church at Corinth was. It's significant to me with all the carnality and all the struggles and all the mess and all the troubles and strife in a single local church that some of the greatest passages on the work of Christ on the cross and on glorifying God are in 1 Corinthians. It's significant to me. It's something of a watershed as you think about, and I'm not going to detail all the outline of all the problems that the Apostle Paul had dealt with in the book of 1 Corinthians to this point. And before it's over with, he'll deal with even more. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 through 11, chapter 1, or something of a watershed. It's as if everything that flows back to the earlier parts of 1 Corinthians, it's as if Paul is saying, listen, if you make your decisions this way, you can fix all those problems. And if you make your decisions this way, problems that he's yet to address, issues that he's yet to deal with or bring up, those can be remedied as well. I love it that godly decision-making, even if there are scars from the past, godly decision-making can regain lost ground in our lives. Many of us are testimonies to that. 
baggage in the past, things you regret, and yet a decision to start choosing the path of life according to godly principles, God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And so I want us to briefly see this morning three imperatives or principles for godly decision-making. Obviously, the overarching principle being everything being done for the glory of God. And that really is the first point. When it comes to these imperatives or godly principles for decision-making, the first is this, everything in life for the glory of God. What does Paul say in verse 31? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. As we think about eating and drinking, what are those activities in a day? I know this, I don't do very well without them. Eating and drinking, they're mundane, ordinary, necessary, routine activities of life. The things that we almost do thoughtlessly. Now, I like to think while I'm eating. I like to enjoy it. But eating and drinking, those things which are the mundane, ordinary, routine activities of life, Paul says, listen, godly decision-making is determining that even in the seemingly insignificant things of life, do it for the glory of God. In the context, the Apostle Paul has been previously dealing with eating and drinking uh, meat offered to idols, and that is the context. And he's dealing with the question in the lives of those first century believers. When it comes to in first century Corinth, much of the meat that was available in the public marketplace, a portion of it had been offered to idols, and then the rest of it would be brought to the market. And there were folks who had a conscientious problem. Some believers who had been saved out of idol worship had a conscientious problem about eating that meat. Others in their Christian growth and maturity had come to the point of saying, you know what, an idol is nothing in this world. Some kind of idolatrous practice hasn't anything to do with it. It doesn't change the fact it's just meat. God made the meat, so eat the meat. But you had other believers that had a conscientious issue with it. And Paul says this, listen, whether you eat or you don't eat, whatever you do, just do it to the glory of God. And there's much more that could be said about that, but the point I want us to consider this is that Paul would have us to understand that even in the daily, mundane, routine activities of life, simple as they seem, do it with the motivation or the intention of glorifying God. Now that raises the question then, what does it mean, this issue of glorifying God? Paul had spoken about it once already back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then in verse number 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does the word glory mean? If we talk about the glory of God or glorifying something, there are two main ideas when you study out the word glory that come forth when it comes to understanding what it means. The first is that which is bright, and in that sense it catches people's attention. It's attractive. Brightness or glorious in the sense of being bright and shiny. And then the other word, not just brightness, but the other word is weightiness, something that has substance to it, something that is heavy and therefore significant or worthy of consideration. I have two illustrations here that I'm going to bring out. I know this is object lesson. 
I know they're doing that in children's church. Now, this right here is bright and shiny. Okay? But tell me, is that weighty? No. There's not a lot of substance to that. As a matter of fact, I can wad it up like this, and it still has no substance. It might attract the attention of a pack rat, okay. but there's no substance to it. On the other hand, I found a brick in the shed over here. There's weight to it, but is it bright and shiny in the sense of being attractive and valuable? So when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about, or the glory of anything, it's talking about something that is both bright in the sense of being attractive, drawing attention, and something that at the same time has substance. Now here's the conclusion of it. The conclusion is this, not just something that is bright and shiny. By the way, we live in a world where there's a lot of bright and shiny with no substance. Do you agree with that? I think about attractive people. Uh, sports stars and Hollywood stars, and they have no substance, okay? But I want you to understand something about our God. Among everything that is bright and attractive, and among everything that has weight and substance to it, our God is the most glorious of all, okay? Our lives, if we are to glorify Him, our lives are to reflect not just the brightness of who our God is, the beauty of who our God is, but the substance or the weightiness of who our God is. All of this very practically comes to this conclusion. I glorify God by, through my life, enhancing people's opinion of my God. Raising their opinion, and I've said it this way before, so that when people look at Nathan Dietrich's life or at your life fill in the blank being a professing Christian, after they have seen your life and interacted with my life and your life, they think bigger and better thoughts about God than they have ever thought before. They're Christians. And, and I would say that sometimes all of us probably fall into this. There are Christians who we profess Christ, but then our life doesn't always match up with what we profess. There's a sense in which, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, praise God, I love the Lord. But then we make decisions that don't necessarily reflect the weightiness or the character of our God as we should. And that affects a testimony. And, and so the point is this, in godly decision making, as I approach a decision, everything for the glory of God, everything for His glory so that not only is the Lord made known by my life, my association with Him, but also even in the little things, I give such due consideration to Him and His character and His will and His sovereignty that when people hear my testimony, they see my life, they realize that not only do I claim the Lord in my life, but what He thinks and His character and His word really matters to me. And even in small decisions, I'm willing to step back and to make sure that I'm doing what I'm doing for the glory of God. Everything for the glory of God. So that as others see my life, and listen, in the context here, one of, one of the points that Paul is making is that every decision that you and I make affects someone else. It affects other people. 
every decision that I make. And so when I have the mindset of the attitude, I don't care how big or how little the decision is, everything for the glory of God that is going to have an impact on other people. The second principle Paul brings out in verse number 32. Not only everything for the glory of God, but as I make decisions in this life, secondly, nothing that gives needless offense. Verse number 32, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Now let me just preface this second point by saying this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in and of itself offensive. We're not talking about diminishing the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive to a lost man. Why? Because the cross means I'm a sinner and I couldn't save myself. And that there's nothing good that I, I remember sitting on an airplane years ago witnessing to a man who had been raised in a religion of good works. That you had to do good works in order to be saved and be sprinkled as a baby in order to be saved and go through the sacraments in order to be saved. And I remember sitting next to him and he was telling me about his family history and about his faithfulness to church and his good works and his denomination, his baptism and all these things. And I remember looking at him and I said, you know, all those things are well and good in their place, but if good works get a person into heaven, then why did Jesus die on the cross? And I'll never forget, he stopped, his jaw dropped open, he looked at me, and then he said, I'm going to have to think about that one. And so there is a sense in which the gospel is offensive. There is a sense, too, in which godly living is offensive to this world. We need to understand that. If we follow Christ in his word, Jesus himself said the world's going to hate us like it hated him. But what is Paul referring to then when he says, give none offense, either to Jew or to Gentile or to the church of God? Paul is referring to our presentation or our representation through us and by us to a watching world. Let me illustrate it this way. Mahatma Gandhi, have you heard the name before, the East Indian Hindu guru? When he was a younger man, got an education in Great Britain and he stayed with a Christian family in London, as the story goes. But they were such a poor representation of Bible Christianity that he had been faced with a decision and was so turned off to Christianity based on what he saw by those who professed to be Christians in that home where he stayed that he turned his back on Christianity and went full scale into Hinduism. He would be asked years later about what he thought about Christianity and what he thought about Christ, and he would say something along these lines, I like the Christ of Christianity, it's just the Christians of Christianity that I have a problem with. So our presentation, our representation, the gospel and godliness in and of themselves are going to be offensive. So the question then is, how then do believers cause offense? And how should we avoid that? Sometimes it's by the pressure that we put on people instead of letting the Holy Spirit do the work. Pressure that we put on people either to convert them, to get them to go through the motions, or to conform them to our brand of Christianity. I'm often reminded of the importance of this statement. We are messengers, not manipulators. 
Sometimes I believe that we cause offense through uh, our preferences. We make disciples of ourselves instead of disciples of Jesus Christ. There are personal preferences, and as a matter of fact, that's a lot of what Paul has been dealing with in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. He would deal with it in a number of other churches and situations too, Judaizers and others that would come along and they would try to force the churches into their preferences rather than following Christ. Now listen, there are some things that I feel very strongly about. When it comes to dress standards, when it comes to music, when it comes to the... Ver- there, there's a reason we use the King James Version at Crossroads Baptist Church. There are good doctrinal philosophical reasons why we do. But I've heard people go to the other extreme and say, if you didn't get saved out of a King James Version, you're not going to heaven. That's not true. Or how can a person be godly? I've met some very godly people who've never owned a King James Version. Okay, we can all get over being shocked now. Or maybe don't dress exactly the way that we do. Okay? We need to be careful that we don't cause offense. It doesn't mean you don't hold the position, but do so in such a spirit as to not cause offense. I think about how sometimes our personality, the more fleshly manifestations of a personality. I like courage. I like boldness, but not brashness. You know, Doc was talking about telling the truth in Sunday school, and I've heard people say this, I just tell it like I see it. Like, what lenses are you looking through? And there are, everybody's got a personality, but there are flesh, you got to remember there are fleshly manifestations of our personality. Okay, under the curse of sin that's still on us, we got to be careful, make sure that we don't conduct ourselves in such a way as to cause needless offense. Let's not be like the pastor I read about several weeks ago who had a lady come to him and she said, Pastor, she goes, I just have to confess a sin to you. It's always kind of nerve-wracking when that happens. I just have to confess a sin to you. She goes, Pastor, I am just so beautiful. And I know I'm more beautiful than most other women in the world. She goes, and I'm just really struggling with this sin of pride. And she said, and I come to church and I can't help it. It's just like it's there. She goes, I've just, I'm, so, I'm just so ashamed of this. She goes, but I look around and I look at all the ladies in the choir and I'm like, I just feel bad for all those ladies that are not as beautiful as I am. And then I sit down and I can't even pay attention to your preaching because I'm so consumed with this sin of pride about my beauty. I look around at all the other ladies while you're preaching and I think, oh, I'm I'm just so much more beautiful than all these ladies. And the pastor looked at her and said, Ma'am, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. (laughs) Giving none offense in the decisions that we make. Nothing that gives offense needlessly. The word offense that Paul uses in verse number 32 literally means something that you strike your toe against. Something that trips you up, causes you to fall. The Apostle Paul says to these believers at Corinth, don't do anything in any decision-making or interactions that you have with other believers, whether it's 
a religious unbeliever symbolized by the Jew, whether it's an irreligious unbeliever symbolized by the Gentile, or whether it's a fellow believer in the church of God, don't do anything in your decision-making and in your choices that causes a needless offense, something on the pathway of life, whether it's a lost person coming to Christ or a believer moving forward in their growth, don't do anything that is going to be a boulder or a stone in their pathway that's going to cause them to trip up. I thought about this as it relates to teaching our children to walk. You know, when, when and, and we're going to get to be seeing this, Emmeline sends us videos almost every day of little Carolyn Wren. I've been using that melt emoji, you know, of that smiley face that's just kind of melting, and I've been using that emoji so much. I watch those videos, and I just am like, oh, she's ours. This precious little baby and little round, chubby chipmunk cheeks, she looks just like Emmeline did. And this sweet little smile, and now she's cooing and laughing. And here, several months from now, she's going to begin learning to walk. When Micah and Emmeline go to teach Carolyn Wren to walk, they're not going to say, okay, let's go to the mall in Iowa City and get right out. Because after all, that's what the real world is. Let's go to the mall in Iowa City where there are a thousand people walking in the thoroughfare and we'll teach you to walk there because you're going to have to learn to dodge all that anyway. Or, or let's fly through Atlanta and one of the terminals at Atlanta as planes are changing and we'll put you right down in the middle and we'll teach you how to walk in the middle of all that. No, that's not how parents... They don't take, parents don't take their little toddler learning how to walk to the crosswalk at the intersection in town and say, let's teach you how to walk by crossing traffic. That's not how they do it, is it? What do they do? No, it's the living room. Scoot all the furniture back. Get every obstacle out of the way. Remove the toys because we don't want little one falling and banging their head on a toy. We don't want anything in their way. And then daddy gets behind on one side and holds up under the arms. Maybe even sometimes initially puts the little toddler's feet on top of their feet just to give them the feel of the step. And they video it. And they're watching it. And then mommy's on the other side down on her knees saying... Come to mommy, come to mommy. And everybody's within a step as that little one learns how to walk. All the obstacles are removed. And Paul says, listen, whether it's dealing with an unbelieving religious person, whether it's dealing with an unbelieving unreligious person, or whether it's dealing with a fellow believer, don't make decisions and choices that cause some kind of obstacle, needless obstacle, or making a big deal out of something that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of a person coming to Christ or a person growing in Christ. We're not making disciples of us. We're making disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's a process. Remember how long it's taken you and me, however many years you've been saved, remember how long it's taken you and me to get to the point where we are. Okay, I don't take my two-year-old and put him behind a steering wheel and say, okay, drive. We take time for that. Our governments recognize the importance of that. And so in godly decision-making, everything for the glory of God 
Number two, nothing that gives offense. And thirdly, beginning in verse number 33, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Number three, in our decision-making, not only everything for the glory of God and nothing that gives needless offense, but thirdly, anything legitimately for the growth of the gospel in people's lives. What does Paul say there in the very last part? He's seeking the profit of many that they may be saved. Paul said as he speaks of anything being used and a resource available for the growth of the gospel, Paul uses the word please. He said, I please not my own self. He said, I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit. The idea of the word please that Paul uses here is he is accommodating himself to the needs of others. Whatever is needed legitimately in order for an unsaved person to be pointed to Christ or a fellow believer to be advanced or edified in their walk with Christ, Paul says, I want to make sure I can help in any way that I can. Okay. And then he uses the word profit. He says, I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit. The word profit is literally the idea of everything coming together. All the different pieces coming together. But Paul said, I'm not interested in all the pieces coming together for my reputation or for my benefit. He said, I want everything to come together for as many other people as possible. When it comes to an unsaved man's need of Christ, I want everything to come together for him because his eternity hinges on that. When it comes to a fellow believer, I want everything, all the different pieces to come together for them. I'm not interested in everything coming together for myself. It's not about me. It's not about my profit. It's not about what's convenient for me, but what is beneficial for others. think about. And listen, there's a place for us being wise financial planners and thinking about our families and the benefit of our families. There is a place for that, a biblical place for that. But, you know, I hear, and it's an easy, it's an easy road to go down of, well, I want everything to come together when it comes to my future plans and my retirement. And when it comes to my 401k, I want everything to come together. And I've got a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. I hear people talk about their five-year plan, their 10-year. Maybe you have one. When I hear guys talk about it, I'm like, man, I'm just trying to get through tomorrow. The five-year plan, the 10-year plan. But if we're not careful, we get so busy about our horizontal plans and everything coming together that we fail to realize that God's put us here. We are only here for a little while. We are eternal. We're going to a heavenly country, and what we are to be doing right now is with eternity in view. And what I can do for the prophet, for everything to come together for others, for everything to come together, all the pieces to come together for fellow believers, all the pieces to come together for someone who needs Jesus, a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, a lost family member, whatever it may be, everything to help pieces come together for them. Paul said, I please all men in all things. I'm accommodating myself to the needs of others. I'm not seeking my own profit, everything coming together for myself, but I am seeking the profit of others. Why? they may be saved. 
And then he says in chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I think of the word please, I think of the word prophet, and then based on verse 1 of chapter 11, I think of the word pattern. Paul says, use me as a pattern because I'm using Christ as a pattern. And you think about the selflessness of Christ, how he received you and me. Paul would say in Romans chapter 15 that not e Christ did not even please himself. There's a very real sense in which he laid aside what, can I say this, in his humanity he would have wanted and longed for. He laid it aside for you and for me so that we, through his poverty, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, might be rich. We've had the privilege last couple of weeks of benefiting from some blueberry bushes. Tom's been a great blessing, even picked some of them. I think in the last week and a half to two weeks, we ourselves have a, a total of all, around five gallons of blueberries that have come through. And I know others have been able to benefit from those as well. I was talking to some little girls here at church about blueberries, picking blueberries. And an older sister said of her younger sister, she goes, yeah, it, we don't do very well when we go blueberry picking with her. Because it's always one for the bucket, two for me. One for the bucket, three for me. Especially the big, juicy, sweet ones, right? You know what? Let, let's, not, let's not be like that. I'm too frequently like that. One for the bucket, other people's benefit, two for me. Anything, legitimately, for the growth of the gospel. Is there something in our lives that if Christ asked for it for the sake of eternity, we would say, not that. Anything but that. It's a question worthy of contemplation. For some, as I bring this to a conclusion, for some, the magnitude, the impact of decision-making, uh, based on these three principles, everything for the glory of God, nothing that causes needless offense to others, and anything for the growth of the gospel and the cause of Christ. These three simple principles that Paul has given to us in this passage of Scripture, for some, the magnitude and the impact of decision-making by these principles will take them to other parts of the world. To start churches on remote islands or in South American jungles or in the deserts of Africa. But for most of us, for most of us, Applying these principles in our lives, everything for the glory of God, everything, even the daily mundane decisions of life, work every day, house cleaning, yard work, whatever it may be, doing the simple things, going to work, doing the simple things, the daily routine mundane things, eating and drinking for the glory of God so that others, as they watch my day in and day out testimony, they think bigger and better thoughts about God. For most of us, that's going to be right here right here in the Carolinas. Decision-making by the principle, I'm not going to do anything that causes needless offense, a stumbling block in somebody else's path, whether it's an unbelieving religious or irreligious man who needs Jesus Christ or a fellow believer. I'm not going to do anything that causes another brother to stumble knowingly. By the way, Paul warned regularly about being a stumbling block.
for most of us, those decisions are going to be right here at Crossroads Baptist Church, right here at our workplace, right here among our family and friends. For most of us, the decision is going to be right here, anything, not my own pleasure, but the profit of many, not my own profit, but things coming together for other people. Using my circle of influence to point unbelievers to Christ and fellow believers encouraging them in their growth. It's going to keep us right here at home, at work, at family. I've written as the final question in my notes this simple statement or question. What would my home, my workplace, our church look like if I mustered my relationships, the resources that I have, routines of my regular life if I pointed all of those, if I mustered all of those according to these three simple principles. Everything for the glory of God. Nothing that causes needless offense to others and anything that legitimately contributes to the growth of the gospel and the cause of Christ at work in people's lives. Then God would be glorified. I miss Judson. I miss Audrey and Elena too. But I especially miss Judson yesterday when I pulled in the church and saw the grass needed mowed. He just embraces it. He loves it. Almost to the point of being OCD. Almost to the point of son, relax. But as much as a 16-year-old young man can, he's got a, he, I, he is a golf course mower, okay? A few runs around the perimeter and then straight lines back and forth, that striped pattern. How many of you have noticed it? And after riding out across that field yesterday, it's a miracle. He gets them as straight as he does. Now, me, on the other hand, I'm a farm boy mower. You do two or three swaths around the outside, cutting out the border, blowing the grass in, and then you turn around and then you just keep mowing that circle until it's gone. I told Grace when I got home last night, I said, when Judson gets home and sees how I have desecrated his yard, I'm in trouble. He's going to come home and he's going to go, Dad, what have you done to the churchyard? There's a difference, you know. He owns this. And his heart is he wants it to look as good as possible for the testimony of the church, for the cause of Christ, for the pleasure of others that come so you can pull up that driveway and see, man, this yard looks great. As opposed to the fact that it looks like I put up hay out here yesterday. I'm sitting here thinking very utilitarian. We just got to get this done. Judson's thinking we've got to do this excellently because there's a testimony. I'm thinking time, and man, I can't wait for Judson to get home. Judson, when he does it, he's doing it so that we can be pleased by it, but he's doing it for an audience above, too. Boy, if we had that perspective about all of life, I'm doing this not just to get by, not just because it's expected of me, but I'm doing this because I want other people to think bigger and better thoughts about God than they've ever thought before. When they see how I make my daily decisions, the little ones and the big ones, for the glory of God, 
No needless offense being caused. And anything for the growth of the gospel and the cause of Christ. May God help us in our decision making to do so for the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have challenged me, worked in my life, my own daily decision making. And Lord, even as I have wrestled with the implications of how many decisions are so easily made based on what's convenient, as opposed to what may be difficult and hard up front, but there's a day coming in the future when I'd look back and say, boy, I'm glad we did that. Even as hard as it was, it wasn't convenient, but I'm glad we did that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to just have a reset button set in our minds as we think about the the big decisions we make in life and the simple daily routine decisions that we make, that we would bring them all under the guidance, the direction of this watershed passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Lord, that you just burn these indelibly in our hearts and minds. And as we even go to lunch today, and even as we think about coming back to church tonight and getting up going to work tomorrow, and how we clean a house, how we uh, conduct ourselves at our workplace, how we interact with other people, fellow believers or the lost around us, I pray that we would be implementing over and over and over these three principles so that you can get the glory that you deserve. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.